This is The Bittersweet Life, a show for expats, former expats, travel lovers, and people who dream about moving far away someday. I'm Katie Sewell, a recent repatriate to Seattle in the United States after a year in Rome. My co-host is Tiffany Parks, an expat who spent the last 10 years in Rome. If you're new to the show, I encourage you to join us for the whole journey by beginning with episode one. If you're really interested in today's theme, however, back up to the beginning afterwards. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. As you might remember from last week, Tiffany is moving this week, so rather than have her on, I have invited Nicole Hardy to join me. She's the author of the memoir, Confessions of a Latter-day Virgin. She's currently working on a book about her year at sea, and she wrote an article for the Washington Post recently titled, The Suitor I've Never Been Able to Turn Down, Wanderlust, which is what brings us to this conversation. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for inviting me. So let's talk about this article since people haven't read it although i will put it up on our website thebittersweetlife.net can you kind of explain what the premise of the article is sure it's published in a column called soloish in the washington post which basically talks about being single but not necessarily alone my article i guess it's a personal essay begins with the phrase 14 is the number of consecutive nights i've ever spent with a man and my memoir goes into it pretty explicitly about just the fact of my singlehood has been the primary fact of my life. It's horrible sometimes and really lonely. And then on the flip side, it's afforded me a lot of freedom to go and do some pretty spectacular things, one of which was to sail around the world on a 180-foot square-rigged tall ship. And I sailed from Fiji to Nova Scotia with a crew of strangers. We were 26 at our smallest and 42 at our largest, and the trip took almost a year. And my forthcoming memoir, which I'm working on but I haven't sold, that's another project. Um, (laughs) um, I'm working on writing that at the moment. And that's about what happened to you during that year at sea? Yeah, there's a, a lot of it is about competence. It's really funny. I I guess I took for granted that normally when I talk, people listen to me and I have good ideas and I'm a smart person and I'm good at all the things I do. I didn't think I was a perfectionist. It turns out I am and I just stopped doing all the things I was bad at. So, <laughs> so being at sea on this ship that really takes a lot of very specific and archaic knowledge was a really incredibly big challenge for me because I am sort of an intellectual type. And suddenly it was just all about physical work and endurance in a way that I wasn't sort of used to having to practice and really being subservient to the captain and my watch leaders and all of those things. So it was a whole new set of skills that was difficult. There's a little bit of a love story. There is a lot about exploration and adventure and I feel like part of my issue with some 
travel memoirs by women is that there's always this premise underneath that the woman must be broken or grieving or damaged and travel is the cure. And I'm like, well, what if I'm none of those things? What if I know exactly who I am and what if I love my life, but I still want to go have an epic adventure just to see if I'm up to the challenge and to see what insight and beauty the adventure will provide. Did you set out to go sailing? Was that your key? How did you end up on this boat? (laughs) I guess is what I'm really asking. Yeah, it's a really good question. I had just finished writing a memoir, so I'd spent a lot of time in my house sort of weeping into my keyboard and really up in my head a lot. And I just had this incredible urge to really be in my body. And I've always been an avid traveler. I'm a scuba diver. I usually travel out of the country one or two times a year at least. I've lived abroad before. I lived in the Cayman Islands uh, in my late 20s. And I just had this really intense feeling that it was time for an epic adventure. And I thought at first that I might scuba dive around the world, just do a solo trip and go from one spot to another. And then I started researching all the places I wanted to go. And it didn't seem super conducive to traveling alone as an American woman. I just started to be kind of concerned about some safety issues. And then a friend showed me this website for this tall ship that marketed itself as a sail training adventure. They would teach us how to sail the way that they did back before the advent of steam engines. It was sort of this romantic notion of learning this lost art. Also, the romantic notion of sailing the world. And the reality, of course, was significantly less romantic. But it did have its pretty spectacular moments. What were you picturing when you pictured yourself on that boat? You're just, what, staring out to see new friends by your side? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I knew that there would be a lot of hard work, but I didn't quite... I don't think they were honest, really, about the extent to which the work would be a factor and the extent to which we would not have any decision-making power. And so I was told, oh, yeah, you'll have tons of time in port and you can go exploring. And that wasn't necessarily the case. Even when we were in port, we were standing watch. And so we were told the day that we arrived in a port, what days we could be off the ship, what days we had to be on, who we could be off with, when we could come and go. And that lack of freedom was unexpected. And I feel like I wish they would have been honest about that. The work on this ship was really rigorous. I think I understood theoretically what that would mean, but then the reality of it was a shock sometimes. For example, we had to sand all the decks, and we have wood decks that we oil so they don't rot, and they would get slippery sometimes, and so you have to sand the decks every once in a while. And we did it the way they did in the olden days. So we were given two-by-fours covered in canvas, a bucket of water, and a bucket of sand. And so for hours and hours a day, for several days on end, we would kneel on the decks and sand in that fashion. When did this dawn on you? Was it in day one as the boat's pulling out, you realize what you've actually signed up for? A year is a long time, right? A year is a really long time. And uh, for sure, all of us thought about quitting. And also the other thing that was a big surprise to me is I figured if people signed up for the journey, they would sign up for the whole year. But it was just me and one other man who did the whole four legs of the journey. Most people came for just one or two or possibly three legs. 
And it wasn't day one that the ship took off. We were actually in port in a harbor doing manual labor for seven weeks before we took off, and that was also a surprise. They said at the beginning that it would be one or two weeks. We'd be learning the ship and learning how to sail, which is great because a lot of people who came on board, like me, had zero sailing experience whatsoever. So we had to learn the language of the ship and what all the things are. And then we had to, you know, it takes somewhere between two and eight people to raise and lower these sails, depending on which sails they are and how heavy the wind is. And so there really was a lot to learn but seven weeks seemed pretty excessive. Did you think about quitting along the way? I did, but at some point I really felt, whether or not I imagined it, I felt like I was in a pretty extreme power struggle with the captain, and I was not going to let him win. And I really felt like if I quit early, then he would have proven his point that I was a princess and I wasn't tough and I wasn't salty and blah, blah. So I figured if he was going to make my life miserable maybe I would stay and give it right back to him (laughs) and how did that that's wonderful (laughs) how did that develop how did this this struggle between the two of you guys come about I think honestly I was an example of his biggest nightmare on board sort of an opinionated very independent 40 year old 40 something year old woman who's not used to taking orders. And that's really tricky because if people don't follow his orders without questions, people could die. There were points during which I thought he took it a little bit to the extreme. For example, one day he arrived at breakfast and I was eating a piece of toast with peanut butter on it and he screamed that peanut butter is not a breakfast food and expected me or everyone to stop eating peanut butter in the morning I'm like I've just paid you $36,000 to be taught how to sail and taken around the world and there should be some decisions such as what I want to eat for breakfast that don't have to be dictated by his authority was that just him sort of trying to I don't know teach you guys that his way is the law and that's the way it's going to go down like a ego thing or I mean it does have to do with survival also I think he like many sea captains did struggle from an ego problem and I think he probably would be the first to admit that that was the case in some ways I feel like we came to like a very grudging but honest respect for each other at the end but Just to illustrate my point, the very first conversation I ever had with the captain happened outside of his cabin, and I had been assigned to paint the overhead. So we're still in port in Fiji. It's during that seven-week period. We haven't set sail yet. We're not about to set sail for a few weeks. He came out of his cabin, and he had just woken up from a nap, and he's not wearing a shirt. He's tattooed everywhere. His hair is sort of wild. He sort of stares at me. And we get into a bit of conversation, and suddenly he looks out into the far distance and says about himself, people say he thinks he's God. I'm not God. The sea is God. The ship is God. God is God. I'm only the prophet. I interpret God. And then he sort of turned around and shuffled back to his cabin. And I was so stunned, thinking he must be joking but in fact he was not and that is 
the way he was all the time. How old was he? Would you guess? Sixty uh, something, okay. probably. Okay. So you pay him thirty-six thousand dollars to go on this journey. Did it feel like you got your thirty-six thousand dollars worth, or did it feel like you were paying him to make you work for him? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Depending on the day, because you know, you asked earlier what I expected when I got on board, and I really, whether or not it was a realistic expectation, I just thought it would be a school ship. And I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for twenty years, and. I thought it would kind of be this, I thought it would be a learning experience where the students were kind of involved or where questions were encouraged or curiosity was sort of nurtured and it would be kind of, I mean, not necessarily holding hands and singing Kumbaya, but a tiny bit of that every once in a while would be good. And I feel like it was a bit of a reign of terror at times and that sounds like an exaggeration and Maybe it is in certain ways, but people were afraid of him, and I think they were afraid to ask questions, and the way that we learned, I feel like, was often by being criticized or yelled at when we got it wrong, and then going through all the ways we could do it wrong before we didn't get yelled at, and that's how you knew you were doing the correct thing, and I thought... As an educator, I feel like there are a lot better ways to go about doing the teaching, but I think a lot of it also had to do with this idea of living an anachronism. He didn't mind that we were uncomfortable and intimidated by him. I think he fostered an era of intimidation. He didn't want to be on our same level, which sometimes I can understand, but it's a pretty exhausting way to live for a year. Do you have any idea why would he run such a thing? Like, why would he offer to take people on a tour around the world for a year? I was assuming this is something he does every single year. I don't know how long he's been a captain, and that's probably a thing I should know, but I think that he has been a mariner for over 40 years, and this is the thing he loves more than anything, and it's a way of life that doesn't exist for many people. And I think that there is something pretty spectacular, for better or worse, about living in a way that very, very few people are able to live or want to live in this day and age. And I think part of his power trip comes from the fact that he thrives under such a circumstance that honestly can break a lot of people. The crew who works for him talk about the fact that his recommendation is the gold standard in the industry and they will do anything to please him. They work for, I think, $500 a month without really any vacation for years and years, just trying to sort of court his favor. I think sometimes he takes advantage of that, which I thought was a little bit shitty. But also, I was a visitor in his world, and I don't really know all the ins and outs of it. I feel like sometimes I've wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, and every once in a while I want to talk really in-depth about how awful it was sometimes. But a year is a long time. At that point, I feel like you transcend visitor. You are part of his world at that point. Did you come out of the experience broken or was it did you come out of the experience feeling what 
That's a tricky question. I spent a lot of the time feeling stupid and feeling incompetent and feeling stressed out and feeling uncomfortable and feeling angry. And then at the same time, there were these moments of sort of devastating beauty that might only last for three or five or 10 or 15 seconds. But I was really aware even of as it was happening that I don't think I could have gotten to that moment if it weren't for all the shit I had slogged through in order to get there. There are a million examples I could get you, but one day I woke up in the morning. It was very near Christmas, maybe a few days after Christmas. I don't remember. And we were doing our deck wash just like we do every day. And it was sort of a cloudy, cold-ish morning. We were all kind of bundled up and grumpy. And one of the guys was hitting my feet with his deck brush like he did every morning. And it was just like mad about, you know, you get cabin fever. You're living in very tight quarters. I lived in a room with 18 other people. You know, you hear all of their noises and all of their complaints. And everyone snores and everyone... living in tight quarters with a lot of people is difficult no matter who you are and then add to the fact that some people are super irritating just by nature (laughs) and not only do you have to live with them but you have to work with them and all of those conflicts get heightened just by the fact that you're rats in a maze after a certain point you know So anyway, we're doing deck wash this one day and I was just all irritated and grumpy and cold and whatever. And the fog burned off and suddenly we saw the coast of Africa much closer than I realized it was going to be. And I just stood there and just this sort of rush of amazement and awe and respect for the way that we had gotten there. You know, we had all just like sweat and vomited and bled and worked so hard to earn the view of these magnificent brown cliffs sort of shooting into the sky. And it was magical really to take a look at that and to realize we had worked for six months to get there, maybe even longer than that. And you finally understand what it means to really earn the view of something. You get the idea of what a mountain climber might feel if he finally summited this peak that had taken him, you know, eight months or whatever, or she, to train and climb and achieve. And I don't think we necessarily risked death, but that is a thing. I mean, people have died. Ships have gone down, ships much like ours and people on ships like ours. I didn't ever feel really unsafe. I felt pretty nervous a couple times, but to arrive somewhere and realize how hard that you've worked to get there and to see it in such a majestic, beautiful, stunning, surprising way was pretty overwhelming. I don't know if the deck got washed very well that day. We all just sort of put down our brooms and stood at the rail and just stared at these cliffs for I don't even know how long until we got yelled at to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's seen it all before, right? Yeah. Wow, that sounds amazing. Does it give you a different perspective historically? Absolutely. And I mean, what was so crazy is that you read about places like the Middle Passage and it... Yeah doesn't that's actually the book I was thinking of yeah it doesn't necessarily mean anything to you until you realize that you're on a ship 
pretty close to the ones that stole slaves from Africa and brought them to America. And you think about the conditions that you're living in where the food gets pretty shitty. There hasn't been anything fresh for weeks to eat and you feel crowded even though you actually have a marine head to use and you have a bunk to sleep in. And we had roaches and we had bed bugs and we had spiders and there were these sicknesses that would spread spread pretty quickly through the ship and so everyone's vomiting for three days or whatever and you multiply that by about 600,000 to think about the conditions that these people must have come from and I have never been homesick before and I've traveled pretty extensively and I felt so isolated and so homesick and really just more lovesick I just was craving so desperately anyone who understood that I had value and worth as a human just because there's just so much where you feel beaten down and uh wow I just got really emotional anyway (laughs) um it's okay emotion is allowed on this show yeah so I just think I can't even imagine what people must have gone through if they were on ships like this because they were indentured servants or because they had been kidnapped into slavery or whatever, or even the crew in days past that weren't treated very humanely. It's a rough way to live even if you're being taken care of as well as you can be. Can you describe what the final day on that boat was like? Did you know it was the final day? I guess it's another yeah. thing. Yeah, we knew it was the final day, and the ship was coming into its home port in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and you know there were news crews and people on the docks and whatever. It was really funny because I guess on the news they kept making a big deal about how we were three hours late. We're like, we just actually sailed around the world in like three hours. It's making a big deal to you people. Like all of those issues of perspective are just so much different. I remember getting off the ship and going into a store and seeing a magazine and it was just all the things that are just really offensive about commercialism were just looked so aggressive to me from the magazine stand. And there were these two women talking about Beyonce as if they were best friends and my head just almost exploded because these are concerns that had not entered my mind for so long. But I will tell you, you become really incredibly grateful for the smallest pleasures, like being able to get a hot, delicious cup of coffee almost brought me to tears at certain points. Being able to have like a cup of yogurt or a piece of cheese. Dairy was a very big deal because you can't get it at a lot of places. And even when you're in port in a lot of places, you don't get like dairy. We love dairy and a lot of the Danish people on board. (laughs) Um, like the ability to eat an avocado or have a piece of fresh fruit or check your email or talk to someone who loves you. You know, when we were on the ship, we didn't have access to email or telephones or any contact with home. And at certain points, we were supposed to be able to get mail, but it didn't always come. There was a package. I think it was a Christmas package that was sent to me from Seattle to... South Africa, and then it went, I don't know, back to San Francisco, and then up to Seattle, and then they resent it to Grenada, but then when we were in port in Grenada, it was Easter weekend, and so the postage was closed, and I realized that this gift from home that contained all these letters and 
messages and just tiny things that remind you that people in the world care that you're alive. I just couldn't get it. And I've never been so heartbroken really in my whole life. Luckily, I finally got it, but I couldn't believe how much the smallest contact with a world that you know and love and feel part of and belong to. See, I'm just like still so traumatized. Um, and it really did feel like a different world. It was, it would, it functioned under different laws and different systems that were really a struggle to understand as like a privileged American lady. So that was, I think, maybe the hardest thing for me, like a total and utter lack of autonomy and just being unfamiliar with the new rules of this unfamiliar culture and not automatically being valued just for the sake of being alive, which I didn't realize was a thing I took for granted at the beginning. So interesting. Now, what did you tell the friend that gave you this idea when you got back? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I, she asked. I mean, a lot of people have asked did I think it was worth it. And it's not an easy question to answer. I'm definitely glad I went. It definitely wasn't the most wonderful experience of my life. I think that it was by far the most difficult and awful experience of my life. And it was also the most magical and incredible. And there was really nothing between those experiences. I was telling a friend that it was either, fuck me, what have I done? Or this is fucking incredible. I kind of can't believe this is happening in real life. And there was nothing between that. And I would vacillate several times per day between thinking it was the worst and thinking it was the best. I think I described it once as the most amazing thing I will definitely never do again. Yeah, that's a good description. <laughs> and But you didn't quit. There's got to be something that no, feels was, good about that. Yeah, it was great. And at one point, I don't know, I can't quite figure out why the captain chose to give me such a hard time. And I think sometimes I talked back more or sometimes I challenged him in ways that other people didn't often I really sincerely wanted to learn and I would ask a lot of questions and I think he took some of those as challenges and they weren't meant to be and that was frustrating for me I'm like you're supposed to be a sail training ship I'm trying to learn from you I'm asking you these things and in some ways we had a connection that was really strange like we would often talk about books we would often talk about history and all of those things, I don't think a lot of people connected with him in that way. But then also, I feel like he gave me a pretty hard time sometimes. But there was this one day, and probably three quarters of the way through the passage, there were all these squalls coming through. And it was nothing really dangerous, but the wind kept shifting, and these squalls were blowing through. And I heard, like, Nicole to the helm, and I had to run up from wherever I was, and I took the wheel, and, you know, for probably 30 or 40 minutes, it was kind of a complicated bout of steering and sail handling, and after it was all over, the captain came up and stood next to me silently for a while with his hands behind his back, and he's looking up at the sails for signs of weather. Finally, he just looked at me and went, Nicole? You're good helmsman. And he walked away. And I feel like maybe in some ways that was 
the entire moment I had been waiting for the whole time, just like some tiny sense of approval or validation or an acknowledgement that I really had learned a lot and I had become skilled in certain ways. And by no means was I a great sailor, but I was, I was fine by the end. I was totally competent or more than competent. And it was funny because even though I was, I feel like I had sort of been waiting for this moment for a long time, it didn't mean anything by then because I already knew that I had achieved these things. And that was a pretty good feeling Mm -hmm. to feel like I wasn't depending on him to convince me I had become good enough. Do you think you'll ever use any of those skills again? Are you going to take to the open (laughs) sea? (laughs) Probably not. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I do have some friends who have sailboats and I can tie knots pretty quickly now and I can take orders pretty well. But I don't, I mean, I think I'll definitely sail again. I don't think I will be a tall ship sailor ever. And I don't think I'm going to sail around the world again. I was teased a lot about wanting to be a passenger on this ship if I was ever just, I don't know, sitting still and looking at things that were beautiful and wishing that someone would bring me a cocktail. Like, I feel like those are normal things to dream about when you've been working really hard. But to verbalize those things was not necessarily approved of. Being a passenger definitely has its perks. But I am proud of all the things I learned, and I'm proud of how hard I worked. Someone recently wrote something on Facebook in response to this solo-ish article about how I was the most resilient of all the crew members. And I laughed so hard when I read that because it's not how I saw myself. I was angry a lot and frustrated a lot. But then at the same time, I worked harder than I've ever worked. I learned more than I've ever learned. And I had to become a different kind of person. And I feel like anything that challenges you to do that, it turns out to be worthwhile in the end, even though I'm not quite sure I can articulate all the benefits of that just yet yeah do you have any sense of how you are a different person maybe just in like one way besides the fact that you can now take orders which you know (laughs) I guess could be a good thing I don't you know I'm not really sure I don't know yet you know the captain described the experience as a time release capsule you won't always know until a year or two or five that are different but I think Maybe if nothing else, immediately you get a sense of all the tiny things that you've taken for granted and all the very large things that you've taken for granted. And I feel like I came home with a pretty intense sense of gratitude for all the things that are easy in life. Mm -hmm. When taking a shower isn't... Even now, I feel like taking a hot shower with soap whenever I feel like it in a bathroom that has a door on it that still feels pretty magical. And I've been home for a year. Like, that hasn't worn off yet. So, I mean, being able to go to the bathroom with a door, that's a really nice thing. Yeah. I don't have a sense of like, how much you actually liked the other people who were on the boat with you, but were there any profound goodbyes on that final day where you felt like I might miss this person? Or did everybody just sort of walk away and collapse into a coffee shop? 
Um, that's a good question because the thing again, I when I pictured it at the beginning, I felt like in my head I had this picture of all of us bonding, becoming inseparable, best friends, you know, that sort of war buddies kind of thing. But people came and went so often on the crew. Like I said, it was just me and one other trainee who went all four legs. A lot of people came and went after six weeks or 12 weeks or six months or whatever. And it was easy to build super intense relationships, but at the same time, you knew they were all really temporary. But there are a few people that I will really, really miss, and I hope that I'll see again sometime. But it felt like a different planet. There's no other way to explain it because the relationships that you have at home don't exist there. The person that you are at home doesn't exist there. The ways that you are accomplished or respected don't exist there. You have to rebuild yourself in this new world with all these new rules. And so the minute we got back home and got back on land, it felt like some of that immediately sort of fell away and we went back to our normal selves. But I will say there are three or four people that I really hope I see again someday. I feel like the relationships there were pretty real and intense and lasting. But one thing that was interesting to me is because I'm a writer and I'm an artist and I'm a person who has a lot of pretty big feelings (laughs) and um, pretty intense relationships in general. A lot of these people are nomads, and I think they go to sea because they have trouble sustaining relationships in real life. And so you have these really intense but very short-lived relationships. And I feel like it suits a certain personality really well, but not mine. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time with all the coming and going, and a lot of people didn't feel comfortable being vulnerable and getting really intimate emotionally in the way that is easier to do on land. You're living in a difficult situation and doing a difficult job, and a lot of people don't want to be weak. The measure of your worth when you're at sea, at least on this ship, was saltiness. And if you were tough, you were respected. And if you were going to cry at how beautiful a sunset was one night, that's not a thing that is valued. Is the captain one of those four? Or do you hope you never see him again? I have such mixed feelings about that. I don't know. He's a complicated character. In some ways, he was really interesting and intriguing. He had sort of this uh, cult of personality thing going on. But Yeah, he was a prophet of God. (laughs) He was totally a prophet. I don't think he could ever sustain a relationship in which he did not have all the power. And I'm not much interested in that. So let's go back to this idea of wanderlust, though, that you say it's been something that you've had your whole life. Can you define what that means to you? Yeah, I really feel like ever since I was little, the only thing I've wanted to do is see the whole world. And it's a tough thing to do when you grow up and have to make a living and have to pay a mortgage and have all these responsibilities. And I write about this a little bit. I feel like The reason I have a little more freedom to wander is because I don't have relationships the way a lot of people do. I don't have children. I don't have a live-in boyfriend. I've never been married. I don't 
have any interest in having a pet. The thing that makes me feel most secure, oddly, is having the freedom to get up and go whenever I need to or want to. And it feels like every few years I have to do something really big. You know, at one point in my late 20s, I woke up one day and was like, I don't even know whose life this is. I'm teaching high school and wearing sensible shoes and sweater sets, and I don't like my neighborhood, and I don't like my house, and I don't love my friends, and I don't. I just don't even know whose life I'm living. And I sold my house, sold my car, quit my job, and moved to the Cayman Islands. And was really happy just living there and writing poems and scuba diving and exploring and working for minimum wage, which seems crazy to a lot of people. And so many people are like, oh, I would do that if I could. But I think if you really wanted to, you would be able to. I feel like if that really is the driving factor, you make decisions that allow you to do it. Maybe you'll see me two or three years from now and I've fallen madly in love with someone and everything is different. Well, that's the interesting thing about your article is it has this overtone and granted, you had to come up with a structure for it, but it has this overtone of if you were to fall in love with somebody, that that person would keep you somewhere or be like, let's go in a couple of years from now. And that's true. Like you have to negotiate jobs and whatever else if you definitely want to be together. But at the same point, wouldn't the person you fall in love with arguably have some of these same characteristics? I would absolutely hope so. And also a lot of that probably is sort of left over from my Mormon upbringing. And I grew up in a super traditional religious system where people got married really young and had a lot of kids really young and lived very traditional lives where you don't take big risks. You don't make impractical decisions. And even in my 20s, I saw a lot of my friends making decisions that made them really happy, but also put down a lot of really, really deep roots that would be impossible to undo. And that always freaked me out a little. It felt like it was shutting me down, this idea that I would live most of my life inside a house and being a homemaker and I was told sort of over and over again that my priorities are right when I wanted those things and so the idea of being a wanderer either in spirit or in the physical act of wandering wasn't quite right but it felt like really fundamental to my identity I'm sure it's not one or the other, but in my experience, it has always felt like love is the thing that keeps you stationary, even though at the beginning it feels so expansive. Suddenly, there are all these reasons why you can't go and you can't do and you can't see and it's silly to spend your money on A, B, or C. I hope that that is not the case. I know a lot of people have are able to still wander and explore even with someone that they really love and those things become even more meaningful because they have a partner in it and i hope that i'm one of the people who's lucky enough to have that someday yeah do you find that when you do travel alone which sounds like you often do is it expansive in that way where there's just so much to learn that you don't get lonely or do you wish that you had a travel companion i'm lonely a lot i just don't feel like that's a reason to keep me from doing all the stuff I want to do. And I feel like when you travel alone, you have this 
fabulous opportunity to meet people and interact with people that you wouldn't if you're already there with people. You sort of stay in your bubble, which is fine because it's really fun to travel with people that you love and uh, that's its own thing but traveling alone has its own opportunities to make you explore further I think and loneliness comes along with that but I don't I guess I don't see loneliness as debilitating it's just part of my life probably part of everyone's life really who's not lonely at any given time right well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my point that people assume that single people are so lonely, but show me any human being that's immune to longing or loneliness, that it is the human condition to feel those things. And I feel like you either accept that and really chase the things that make you joyful and challenged and what's the word I'm looking for? It's not free because nothing is really free, but... <laughs> we lose some of our adventurous spirit the older we get sometimes because things have more consequence or you're more aware of the consequence because you have the wisdom of age. Do you think that you're particularly bold? I know that some women feel like they can't travel alone. It's dangerous. It's challenging. They're restricted in some way. Are you bolder than the average female? I mean, I guess I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. A lot of people tell me that I am I sort of came this way. To, I, I don't feel like I'm trying to make a big statement or I'm making really bold or brave decisions. I feel like I do a lot of things in spite of the fact that I find them pretty scary and intimidating. Well, that's an interesting personality quality right there. Give us another example of something you did that you were intimidated by. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that at some point, I everybody jokes about selling everything they own and moving to a tropical island, and I just woke up one day and went... Why am I not doing that? It's really easy to do. It really only takes about three phone calls to disassemble your life. You call the realtor, you call your boss, and I don't even know what the third phone Your parents, maybe. (laughs) I did. I called my family, uh, who thought I was crazy. But I feel like bold moves are really a lot easier to make than people make them out to be. Why the Cayman Islands, I guess, is my final question. Why did you pick that as your first spot? It's a really boring answer. I traveled there on a cruise with a man I was trying to date, and that was an absolute and total disaster. But there was a moment at which we went on a snorkeling trip, and that was before I learned how to scuba dive. And I was sitting on the boat. Everyone else was still in the water. And... There was just a certain way that the air smelled and a certain color that the water was. And I felt this really strange sense of homecoming, even though I had never been there before. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want to chase it. And then he, he got back onto the boat and I said sort of jokingly, why don't I live here? And he looked at me and said, why don't you? And then I looked back and I said, why don't I? And that was pretty much all it took. And I thought maybe that's more of an impulsive decision than more than most people would feel comfortable making, but it seemed right at the time and led me to a lot of other really interesting, bold decisions. Nicole Hardy is the author of the memoir, Confessions of the Latter-day Virgin. Do you have a working title for the one about you on the boat? The working title is With or Without the Whale. And who's the whale? 
<laughs> we'll have to read the book to find out, right? Exactly. So that's not out yet, but hopefully someday soon. And uh, I will put a link to your article, which is the suitor I've never been able to turn down wanderlust. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's super fun. So this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks. We turn to you to help this show grow and thrive. We can't do it without you. So tell a friend or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thebittersweetlife. You can also follow us on Twitter at bittersweetpod. We post pictures and essays in both places. And please review the show on iTunes if you never have before. And a big thank you to those of you who have donated to the show. We are so grateful. And if you wish you got real mail from time to time, all our donors get handwritten thank you notes. That's how much it means to us. Your donation makes the show possible. It doesn't just disappear into some big organization's coffers. Every little bit is endlessly appreciated. Additionally, if you have a show suggestion or you want to sponsor the program, write to bittersweetlife at mail.com to get the conversation going. We adore you guys. Thanks for everything. <laughs>